So, a Duke and a sculptor walk into a bar. October 12, 1846, in Milan, Italy. The sculptor is Raphael Monti. Late 20s, short, maybe a droopy mustache. The Duke is William George Spencer Cavendish, the Duke of Devonshire from England, on his way south to Naples. 56 years old, slender, reddish-brown hair curling about his forehead, playful smile. Like a Jane Austen character you could confide in while spinning around the ballroom, and he would say something perfectly inappropriate. The Duke has eight of the finest homes in Britain. He has 200,000 acres of British soil. He's a banana named after himself, the Cavendish, cultivated in his gardens and soon to become the world's most popular variety. And now, he wants something more. So, the Duke asks the sculptor, Can you carve me a beautiful young woman, out of marble? And Monty says, Sure, that's easy. And the Duke says, I want a veil over her face. A seemingly transparent veil as though you can see her eyes and nose and lips. As though the person looking at her can see through stone. Now, this sounds like a joke, right? A trick. Una Scherzo, as Monty supposedly called the veil. But a week after meeting Monty, the Duke returns. And this time, he has a down payment. About 6,000 pounds in today's money. For one Vestal virgin, a priestess tending the sacred fire of Vesta, the ancient Roman goddess. A virgin with a veil. And Monty takes the money. And soon, what may have begun as a scherzo becomes something much more serious. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Episode 1 of Season 3, with new stories coming out every month. I'm excited to open with this one, about a marvelous invention in the age of marvels and inventions. A story of hidden passions and veiled prejudice. A story of illusions just out of reach. I'm Tim Gearing. London, at the dawn of the Victorian era, is a kind of sculptor's haven. Because the British Empire is about to become the largest in history, right? London is about to become the largest city on earth. There's pride and prejudice, pomp and circumstance, and a growing infatuation with the classical era of Rome and Greece. History is again being written, as it were, in stone. William Cavendish is one of the sculptor's great patrons. His parents had been unhappy in love. And then it got worse. His mother's friend, Elizabeth, 
rather famously put herself in the relationship. Kind of menage a trois. In fact, Elizabeth bears two of his father's children. But when his mother becomes pregnant by another man, she's banished. There's a movie about this, right? The Duchess, with Kira Knightley as William's young mother. William's mother and Elizabeth eventually settle for a while in Italy. Cavendish is 21 when his father dies, and he becomes the Duke. And a few years later, Elizabeth introduces the Duke to Antonio Canova in Rome, the greatest sculptor of his generation, famous for his neoclassical nudes of famous men, real and imagined, like Napoleon and Hercules. If you Google George Washington nude, it's Canova's work that comes up, but careful, you'll never unsee that. They spend many hours together, the Duke and Canova, talking in the artist's studio. And surely they talk about the veiled sculptures in Naples. Veiled figures carved from marble had been popular a hundred years earlier, in the 1700s. They're illusions, right? No more real than a woman being sawed in half on stage. A kind of parlor trick for sculptors to show off their chops. But as illusions go, they're mesmerizing. And for a while in the 1700s, sculptors competed to put all manner of subjects under see-through garments. The virtue of modesty, for instance, personified as a, well, nude woman in the Chapel de San Severo in Naples, wearing this skin-tight, see-through, not-so-modest robe. Or the famous veiled Christ in the same chapel, Christ's crucified body beneath his burial shroud. You can see his protruding ribs, the holes in his hands and feet. The chapel's patron dabbled in alchemy, and rumor had it, the shroud was formed through some alchemical transmutation. It must have seemed a simpler explanation than sculpting. In fact, Antonio Canova is a great admirer of the veiled Christ. He reportedly tried to buy it. He said he would have given up ten years of his life to make such a masterful illusion. Now, let's skip ahead a bit. Cavendish is widely known in England as the Bachelor Duke, right? He never marries, and neither does Canova. Neither does Monty. And while there's plenty of speculation among scholars about why that is, well, what we do know is that the art world then, where men are the primary patrons and artists and critics, is kind of a safe haven for men to come together and talk about the body and gaze at the body in ways they otherwise could not. Especially in neoclassical art, with its focus on the male nude. 
Neoclassical art, after all, is inspired by the excavation of the remains of Pompeii and Herculaneum in the 1700s. The sculptures that are turned pale with ash and age and cleaning. Sculptures derived from the ancient Greek ideal, established as the pinnacle of art history by Johann Winkelmann, the gay art historian who first celebrated those ruins. Eventually, the ideal of men loving other men is also linked to ancient Greece, right? The concept of Greek love. And now, in the art of the 1800s, these ideals are merging. In 1819, when the Duke first meets Antonio Canova, he commissions him to sculpt something for him. Anything. And Canova decides on a sculpture of Endymion, the handsome young shepherd of Greek mythology. Zeus had granted Endymion a kind of eternal life, albeit an eternal sleep, according to the myth, so his lover could embrace him forever. Canova spends the next three years on the project, asking for more time and money as he goes. Until finally, in 1822, he finishes the sculpture, an image of Endymion reclining, nude except for a bit of robe like a fig leaf, open to his lover in perpetuity. And then, shortly after finishing, Canova dies. The Duke builds a massive new wing at Chatsworth, the family seat, one of the grandest homes in England. And in the new wing, the Duke installs a kind of arts and entertainment center, with a Turkish bath and a theater and a sculpture gallery. And he begins acquiring sculpture en masse, shipping marbles by the dozen. The Duke is commissioning Canova's pupils and acolytes searching, perhaps, for some essence of the master. And then, on that day in 1846, he finds Raphael Monti in Milan. When the Duke commissions the veiled vestal from Monti, he may be thinking of Canova and Naples, the veil as a symbol of chastity or hidden passion, a life that can't be fully revealed. He may be thinking of the House of the Vestals at the Forum in Rome, which was being excavated right around then with funding from Elizabeth, who introduced him to Canova. Certainly, the Duke knows that the priestesses who lived together in the House of the Vestals were free from the obligation to marry. Okay, it's 1847, and Monty has done it. He's carved the veiled vestule in just a few months. In the spring, he travels with it by ship to deliver the Duke's prize to London. A woman carved from white marble, kneeling with a bowl of fire in her hand, the sacred fire of Rome, her head wrapped in a long white veil. When Monty returns to Milan, his father has died and his homeland is at war. Monty had learned to sculpt from his father, who worked on the Milan Cathedral 
and was a great admirer of Antonio Canova. After earning a gold medal at 20 for his art, Monti had been invited to Vienna, the home of the Habsburgs, the royal family of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? Because the Austrians rule northern Italy at this point. And now, Italy is rebelling against the Austrians. And Monti signs on to fight his patrons. Street fighting with rifles and bayonets and barricades. But after the Italians are crushed in an early battle, Monty leaves for England once again. And this time, he takes his work with him and opens a studio in London. The Duke never puts the veiled vestal in a sculpture gallery at Chatsworth. When the sculpture arrives, he puts it in his villa in the west of London. Nearly a century later, in 1999, it will move to Chatsworth. And Kira Knightley, again, in the Pride and Prejudice film that was shot there, will stand before it in the sculpture gallery, right? And see the compassion in her face that she hadn't yet seen in Mr. Darcy. But in the 1840s, the sculpture simply moves from one gallery show to the next as a kind of calling card for Monty. Look what I can do. Until in 1851, it's in the biggest show of all. The Great Exhibition in the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park. The first World's Fair. By 1851, Monty is well known in London enough to be put in charge of the Austrian sculpture court at the exhibition. Even though Monty had fought the Austrians just a few years before. The Crystal Palace is crammed with some 100,000 examples of the white man's supposed progress around the world, from machinery to art. But Monty's sculptures stand out. In fact, Monty dominates the Austrian display with nine of his own works. A canopy of red drapes hangs behind them. And in an antechamber, a small inner room, there is the veiled vestal and three other veiled statues. Now, the critics claim that Monty had called the veil on the vestal virgin una scherzo, a trifle, a joke even. But now they're incensed to see even more veils, over and over. They call the veils a trick, a trivial accessory, captivating and surprising as a novelty, but beneath the dignity of sculpture as a recurring motif. One critic says it's the kind of thing you see all over the Vatican, a not-so-veiled shot at Catholicism. The vulgar may wonder at it, one magazine laments, but the educated grieve. By the end of the Great Exhibition, however, Monty is a celebrity. About six million people have filed through the Crystal Palace, and the Veiled Vestal is said to be one of the three most visited works in the show. Even Queen Victoria stopped by on her opening tour and reportedly offered 
for, quote, unqualified approbation. Now, a lot of sculptors, mostly Italian, are turning out veiled women. Monty included, of course. One after the other. Including the veiled lady, now at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. And when the Crystal Palace is relocated to South London after the exhibition, Monty goes with it as a designer. Commissioned to make statuary and outdoor fountains. He's taking on a lot. He's almost an industrial operation now. A factory of marvels. So, here's a story. In the late 1850s, Monty is commissioned to make a massive statue of a man on a horse. Charles William Vane Stewart, the third Marquis of Londonderry. The statue goes up in 1861 in Durham, in the north of England. And Monty is so proud, the story goes, that he challenges everyone at the unveiling to find fault with it. He says he'll reward anyone who can find even the smallest mistake. Lots of people try, but no one can find anything wrong with it. And then, a blind man arrives. And Monty's like, ah, okay. And the blind man asks to be lifted up so he can feel around the statue. Then he says, actually, there is something wrong. The horse has no tongue. Monty is devastated. He can't believe he made such a silly mistake. In fact, he's so distraught, he kills himself. It's not a true story. Monty does make a massive statue of a man on a horse for Durham Marketplace. And he probably is proud of it. It's nice. The only thing wrong with it is that it's huge, which means the horse has a huge rear end, which means people have to walk toward a huge rear end every time they enter the square. So they try turning the horse around and, well, there's still a rear end in someone's face. But Monty doesn't kill himself. That's just a story still told around County Durham. Instead, at the height of his powers, Monty disappears. Monty had taken on a lot of debt, trying to complete all the commissions for the Crystal Palace. The art world had changed, with sculpture increasingly seen as a commercial endeavor. The stakes are high. And by the time the statue at the Marquis goes up, Monty is bankrupt. In his 60s now, Monty reportedly avoids going out after dark, fearing he'll encounter someone he owes. He sells his carving tools. He moves around, and in the last years of his life, 
He's a boarder in the home of a German watchmaker in the West End of London, just a few miles from where the veiled vestal is displayed. He dies there, in the watchmaker's house, in October 1881, with a fellow sculptor at his side. Before he dies, Monty makes one last great sculpture, another veiled woman, for the International Exhibition of 1862, another World's Fair. Monty had never thought of his veiled ladies as a scherzo, of course. Shortly after the Great Exhibition opened in 1851, Monty had served as a spokesman for the Italian sculptors at a reception, toasting their English hosts with a vow to repay their hospitality, quote, on the banks of the Po and the Tiber in Italy. He had hoped the Italian rebels would prevail against the Austrians and finally unite the country. But it wasn't to be. About ten weeks into the show, a correspondent for the Times of London reported that Austria had succeeded in solidifying its grip. Quote, Every pass, every fort, every city gate is in her indefinite possession. Instead, these veiled women turned out by Monti and the other Italian sculptors become associated with the Italian resistance, the fight for unification. The veiled lady, her features kind of indistinct, suggests every Italian woman. She is the Britannia, the Lady Liberty of Italy. And now, as Monti is carving his last great piece for the International Exhibition of 1862, the Italian fighters have finally succeeded. The Austrians are gone. Monti calls this piece the sleep of sorrow and the dream of joy. It's now at the V&A, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. The sleeping figure of sorrow is curled in a rose bush at the base. The dream of joy, a mostly nude woman, hovers over her in victory, an illusion of levitation. The dream of joy is clothed only in a long, sheer gown, pulled tightly around her face. A veil, so transparent we can see the lines on her lips. She's rising as if she's finally above it all, beyond gravity, beyond oppression and prejudice, beyond reality. She is a dream, after all, of this world, but hidden by the thinnest of veils. Oh, was just beyond our grasp. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gehring. Stay tuned for more episodes coming out monthly now, as Season 3 gets underway. Please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Amazon Music or ask your Alexa 
to Play the Object podcast. And thanks very much for listening.